We are Allie and Erica, certified integrative nutrition health coaches in gut and hormone health and the hosts of the podcast, Courageous Wellness. We are committed to destigmatizing conversations in the wellness space and celebrate the experiences and lessons of our guests in pursuit of physical, emotional, and spiritual wellness. Listen to Courageous Wellness wherever you get your podcasts with fresh episodes every Wednesday. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hey, this is Alexis Haynes. Join me every Monday for a new episode of my podcast, Recovering From Reality. Whether you're on the road to recovery, seeking self-care techniques for surviving the capitalist machine, or just need a moment to remember that you're not alone in your loneliness, I'm here to deliver intimate conversations and expert insights to empower you on the road towards authentic wellness. So are you ready to recover from reality? Welcome to the Gabby Reese Show. It's all an experiment. Hey, Gabby, Hi, everyone, and welcome to the show. This week on the podcast, I have a very special guest, Mandana Dayani, and she is one half of an incredible team with a new podcast called The Dissenters, which just came out last Thursday, the 21st. They're going to do 20 shows. These are highly in-depth shows, well-investigated and researched. And her partner is Deborah Messing from Will and & Grace. And these are two women who are very interested and not only making a difference in their worlds, but telling the stories of people who are going against the status quo. And to be honest, their show is fascinating, but Madonna's own journey is really compelling. Her parents were from Iran and they came to the US to give their children a better life. They started in New York and then ended up in Los Angeles. Both her and her brother were educated here and uh, he became a surgeon. Mandana went to USC Law School. When you come from a good family, you want to do the right things, and both of them did. And what's interesting is Mandana, who was being very dutiful, ended up at a big law firm and realized, hey, I don't want to be a lawyer. So the other interesting part of this is that journey, but then the ability to say, the people around me who love me, that I respect and admire so much will have to trust me that there's something else out there in my life. And the other thing that I love is how she goes about pursuing new things, calling somebody, taking people to coffee, asking questions, being willing to work and throwing yourself into things to find out you know, how to do it. So not being afraid to say, I don't know if I'm gonna be successful or not, because I don't know how to do that, but looking at something and going, that feels good to me. And I wanna learn about that. And just having the confidence to do that. So make sure you check out The Dissenters and please enjoy the show with Mandana. In a way, I get the impression, especially based on, you know, things I've seen on you and the podcast that uh, you and Deborah are doing, The Dissenters, it's like, like you're a do person. Like, oh, that doesn't seem right and fair. So I'm going to get in there. What can we do? I think that, like you just said, it kind of interesting. Like if you're having a good day or something good happens and then in simultaneously when this sort of other experience is happening. I mean, how is that for you? I think a lot of what I've done my whole life has been driven. So I long backstory, but so my family and I were immigrants. We came to this country when I was almost six years old. And why did you? come from Iran, right? Yes. So we came as technically as religious refugees. So we're Jewish. And when the regime changed, there were all these struggles and we couldn't leave. My mom kept petitioning to try to get us to leave Iran and come here. Um, By that point, like so many doctors, I mean, so many people had left and my dad was actually injured. He had a retinal detachment, but we didn't know what was wrong with him. We actually thought he went blind. There was like a bombing right where he was and we couldn't get the medical attention that he needed. And my mom kept trying to get us to leave and go to like France or Italy or one of the places we used to spend a lot of time in. And they were like, 
you you can leave, but you have to leave your kids here, or he can go by himself, or and obviously she wasn't going to do that, and so she eventually petitioned to get us to leave and kind of like sign our home and everything we own as collateral in our bank accounts that we would come back, and we just never went back. So we went and we stayed on one of our neighbor's couches um, in Italy. My dad went to France to have surgery and then came back, and they seized all of our assets. I have one older brother, but we had like nothing. So we were, I mean, at that point. It was trying to figure out what was next. And my mom, through this incredible Jewish organization called Hyas that helps refugees resettle, got us asylum to come to America. And so they like met us in New York and like helped us off an airplane, like helped us find an apartment. But you're really starting over and none of us really spoke English. We didn't really know what we were doing. But I think that that an experience like that is so formative, especially when it's so early because, I mean, first it made us so close, but I was always so aware that like, America saved my life. And that so much of this was a circumstance of luck, right? It's not like I deserved to come to America. Like my life could have been just as bad as all the other people that didn't get to leave. And so I think there's always been, not this guilt, but this profound sense of like indebtedness. Like there, you have to level this, this equally, you know, like you have to help the other people that don't get the help that I got. And so I don't know. That has been such a driving force. And I think situations like this where you see how lucky you are to be healthy and to be able to stay home and to have the choices that we get to take every day, you're so mindful of the people that don't have that as well. And and I think that's kind of where the guilt comes from. Do you, so are your parents still on the East Coast? Because I know you went to USC. No, we all moved here within, so this is like very traditional culture and, and, you know, the community I come from. We lived in New York for about three years. And then someone called my dad and said, Beverly Hills has the best public schools. You have to come here. And so we like scrambled enough money from all of our cousins to get on an airplane and come to LA. My dad came like a couple weeks before us. And, and of course, at the time, there's like no internet. So my dad was walking around with an envelope of cash, like up and down the streets in the furthest perimeter of Beverly Hills so that we could still be in district, but afford an apartment and like convince some guy with, to give him an apartment, even though he had no credit or credit cards or anything. So yeah, then we all moved to LA when I was around eight years old. And then I started, and then we've kind of been here. My parents live a block and a half away from me. (laughs) You know, I see people that lived in New York City when I was very young, well, a teenager. And I would sometimes get in the taxi and it would hit me in about four seconds that the driver of the taxi was more educated in every way than I would ever be in my life and that they just chose for whatever circumstances or needed to, to leave. And, you know, I'm always like fascinated by people who can say, okay, I'm going to abandon a full identity. Cause I, I would imagine the fact that your parents emphasize education and you yeah. know, that there, there was probably an identity that was established by your dad. Of course. Absolutely. And how do they, like, what is it? Did you see in him? Because I think this is probably true to some of the people that you talk to on your show with Deborah, but what do you think it is besides the love of his family? Cause I think, you know, sometimes you're in those situations, you're like, Hey, I have to do right yeah. and best for my family. But that was he able to create a new, the next chapters and the next stories or. Yeah. I mean, he eventually kind of figured out a way to establish a business and support our family and learn English and, I think it instilled a real scrappiness in all of us of just like figure your shit out because no one else is. And I think that has, you know, been a competitive edge for me and my profession and academically my whole life. But I think for my parents, it really was about the family. Like they never lived for themselves. It was never about what car they drove or where they lived or, you know, how cool they were in in society. It was really like how good of a car I had and how good my school was. And like all of the pride that they had was was for us and in our achievements. So obviously my brother became a surgeon and I went to law school and practiced law for a while. And that to them was, that is the American dream. That was why they came here. And to them, the fact that they were able to figure that out is was worth every sacrifice that they made. You know, over the last like two years, as I've become more active mm-hmm. um, in social justice, two of my very close friends started this organization with one of their sisters called This Is About Humanity. And they take these buses and we go down to Mexico and you see the families and the migrants that are trying to cross the border and you have a chance to speak to them and hear their stories and bear witness to their experience and bring them food or whatever it is they need. You know, every time I see them, it's it's the same story. You know, it's not 
nothing, none of it is political. They just want their families to be safe. And I mean, that was what my family cared about. Obviously, there's economic opportunity, but that's all tied to safety Mm -hmm. um, and stability. And there is no sacrifice that they wouldn't make, even their own lives, to give their kids a chance at some level of security and stability that they didn't have. And it's it's so beautiful. And I think it's one of those things that I think frustrated me so much as I continue to see the political divide in our country because, you know, this immigration issue was such a false narrative. I believe that immigrants are some of the most patriotic people in our country because we're so grateful for being here. We love this country. We're not going to take advantage of it. Like we like I, we grew up with American flags all over my house. You know, we were like, this is the greatest place in the world. My parents said that to me every day my whole life. I could venture to say almost every immigrant family feels that way too. And I think that that's kind of what was always missing for me in the public narrative. Yeah, I think, you know, it's a really important thing you're saying. Uh, I was watching a stand-up comedian who's from China recently. I don't know if you saw him. I'm, I'm going to remember his name. But he talked about how they call, you know, America, I think the name for the U.S. and Chinese is like, you know, the great country or the high country. And and he said the name for the United States is actually better than it is for China. And then he goes, then you get there and everyone's like, this sucks. You know, like AT&T sucks. This line sucks. That restaurant sucks. You know, like talking about how the people here, you know, they don't, they not only do not have that contrast, but they don't understand the limitations if you're from a certain place or religion, or you have a last name that's a certain way. Like they, they don't get that. Um, Of course. We're all immigrants. I mean, come on. Like at the, yes, hundred percent. Laugh at that, like, oh, go back home. It's like, should we all go back home, wherever, like to Europe, wherever we're <laughs> yeah, like, from? I'm sorry, were you a Native American? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you know, it's interesting. I have three daughters, and I, you know, there's a lot of learning that goes on. You know, there's all different types of learning, right? Like you had learning, having that experience with your parents, and then you know, trying to develop a career and going to law school and things like that. And then I think there's sort of new learning that goes on when you have your own your own children. And I. You know, I didn't have the easiest childhood. And so my husband and I, we thought, oh, it'll be exciting. Like, we'll try to make it easier for them. And then what we didn't realize, and somebody pointed out to us that, like, see, it's different than your situation, right? Like, we didn't really have expectation put upon us. Interesting. It was like, okay, good luck, you know what was your name again? Oh yeah. Okay. Good luck, sweetie. You know, like I'm I'm exaggerating, but then there's freedom in that. Yes. Like it's harder because you're kind of navigating, but in some ways, whatever you do will be okay. It will be good enough. Yes. And I wonder when you come from a family like yours that when people say to me, like a good family, I think of a family like yours, not, oh, well, they went to Harvard. And I'm, when I hear the word good family, it means a real family. Yeah. A connected family, intact family, But then I wonder when you're a junior or a senior, you know, obviously you and your brother are very intelligent people. Thank you. But is there this kind of like extra layer of, I have to kind of kill it? Oh, 100%. The pressure was unbearable at times. Like what, tell me about that. Because I I don't know, I find, I think sometimes we see people that do things and we go, wow, they're amazing and they're so bright and they've had four careers already. And, but they don't understand maybe before all that. I mean, there's this pressure, obviously, that you put on yourself, which is like, oh my God, my parents gave everything up for me to be here. Like, I can't fuck this up. But then there's Mm -hmm. the other pressure of just the expectations that my parents had for both of us. There's the expectation, I think, for success and what that means. There's the pressure of, well, there's no one to catch me if I fall because we had no financial safety net. So there's no one's paying for my school. There's like, you got to figure this out. You're kind of on your own financially forever. And like, P.S., you may need to take care of us. And, you know, we we were raised in these like villages kind of, which is even though we're here, but it's like we take care of each other no matter what. We all cook for each other. Someone has a baby. We're all nannies. You know, we all financially support each other. Like you made a ton of money. Well, give me half of it. You know, it's, it's like um, and it's really beautiful, but it also is it's a lot to take in. And there was never conversation about like what made you happy. No one cared. No one ever asked you like, what are you naturally good at? Do you like art? Zero conversations ever existed in my entire life where somebody was like, are you interested in an instrument? So it was very like, stay on course, stay tracked, don't mess up. The idea of trying to figure out who I was and what made me different and what made me happy didn't happen 
till much later in my life. And that was also a huge, like, crazy. I mean, I remember I was a lawyer and I worked at a huge firm and I was there for two years. And I'm like, but I don't want to do this. Like, I've been fighting my whole life to get to this place. And now I'm here and this sucks. This is not what I want to do. This is not who I am. This is not what I'm like inherently good at or what I was put on this in this earth to do. And then, you know, that that crisis of trying to figure out who you are and what makes you happy so late in your life is hard. It's really hard. I think we look sometimes at certain people and we go, that seems easier, but that's what I wanted to ask you because I think there's a lot of people who you know, they go to college and they say, okay, what I should pick a job that sounds like a real job. Like, what are you doing? I'm doing, I'm studying business. Oh, perfect. I'm in accounting. I'm going to law school. <laughs> you go to USC, you graduate, and you work for a few years, and then you became a talent agent. So what happened was I, I knew I didn't want to practice law, but I didn't know what I wanted to do. I, I just, I remember sitting in this room and like looking around and all these partners and everyone's really successful. And I'm like, I don't want to be any of these people. Like they all look, mis- they all looked unhappy. I love people. I'm such a relationship person and I have so many opinions and I'm so passionate. And, you know, you're so removed from clients in a big firm environment. And like, you're such a small part of such a big puzzle. And I didn't, it was so hard for me. I'm so competitive and there's no real sense of like meritocracy in a big law firm. So it's like, you're the best first year associate. Great. You're a second year associate. And I'm like, wait, I can't win this. Like I can't be 10th year associate in two years. Like this is not fun for me. And when you realize like this is not conducive to your personality, I just was like, but then I had this this whole crisis of like, but I don't know what I want to do. And I don't know what anyone does. I mean, it's so weird because when you grow up in these traditional families, it's like everyone in your family is a doctor or a lawyer or a dentist or like whatever works in real estate. And then you realize there's all these other jobs. What does a marketing person do? What's an architect do? Like when you're an editor, do you edit things all day? What do you actually do? You hear, watch them on TV, but like, I don't know what these jobs are. So I don't know if that I would want to do them. And here I'm 27 years old and I have a law degree and I've been practicing and I don't know what an editor does. So that was a weird realization. And so my husband, who was my boyfriend at the time, was like, listen, you need to, you need to figure this out and you need to just ask people. Like everyone's happy to talk about themselves. You're not asking anyone for a job, just research. And I love research because I'm a nerd. So I started looking up all these people that I thought had really cool careers and jobs. And I just found someone that knew them or I knew them. And I was like, can I just take you to coffee for 30 minutes? I'm going to ask you a hundred questions. I'm not asking you for any favors. And most of them said yes, which I was really surprised by. And then I just started this exploration of like, what do people do? And I think it requires a certain level of self-awareness, but I would sit in those meetings and be like, ooh, that is not for me or that is for me. And I sat down with this guy who was a really successful commercial talent agent. And he was basically turning people into brands. I had done a lot of licensing deals as a lawyer and I was the most like fashion obsessed, crazy person you've ever met in your life. And he was talking about how he just signed a bunch of fashion clients. And he's like, oh, but I don't know what I'm going to do with them. And I was like, can I come work for you on Monday and just see what you do? And I was like, honestly, you don't have to pay me. I just want to come. And I just want to see like what this interaction looks like. But wait, wait, wait. So do you pull the cord on your real <laughs> job, your grown-up yes, job? Yes. What's that conversation? Do you tell your parents or do you pull the cord and that's sort of like your secret for a minute? My parents fully flipped out when I told them I don't want to practice law. And it took a minute to kind of explain. Like, I promise you there's something bigger. I just need you to trust me. They were not very open to it, but it kind of just happened regardless. So who's harder, your mom or your, your dad? My mom, probably. And so I just kind of showed up at his office and started helping. And obviously, like, I'm, I know me. Like, put me in any situation, I'll add a lot of value. Like, I kind of know what I'm good at. I know what I'm not good at. And uh, one of his clients ended up being Rachel Zoe, who is a big fashion stylist. And at the time, was had just about been on the show on Bravo and was kind of really, really growing. And we started working on the licensing deal to launch her collection. And I did that for about seven months to worked on that and getting that deal together. And she looked at me and we became really close through the process and I did everything I could to be as useful to her as possible. And then one day she just looked at me and was like, so are you going to come launch this thing for me? Or like, and I was like, of course, I know everything about fashion. (laughs) I knew nothing. We jumped in. I was on the plane like two weeks later flying to New York. We were looking, we were hiring designers and production teams and putting together brand books. And I just remember Googling how to do these things and kind of figuring it out. I was reading 
something where you you said, you know, I and I, I think this goes back to knowing oneself though, is you said, you know, pretty much if you have the inclination, you can figure it out. I think that if you have common sense and if you're really self-aware and passionate, you can figure anything out. Like I don't really, I don't, and that's why like a lot of times when I hire people and I've done a lot of hiring in my career, like pivots, but I don't hire for the person that came from the best company or had the specific title. I'm like sitting in that room and I'm like, are you going to figure this shit out? Mm -hmm. Um, And the scrappier people, the people who are really well-researched, who come in, who know everything about me and know everything about the company and are just pitching me how hard they want to be there. I'm like, you should be here. And the people that come in and like don't know how to pronounce the company's name, not sure what we do, I'm like, you don't want to be here that badly. I mean, it's very clear kind of the hustle that people put into things. Um, And to me, that's like the hustler is the winner always. So why do you think, because you don't have this, and I think a lot of times, you know, people are so afraid to fail and to either, never mind pivot from one real thing that's considered stable or real to something new that they maybe would be more passionate about, but even just to kind of go for it, period, initially. What do you think it is? Because you talk to a lot of people and you talk to people that go against the status quo. And I want to get into your show in a minute, but, you know, what do you think that is that would separate one person who said, you know what, screw it. I don't know the way but this doesn't feel good or right to me. I'm going on this new way versus someone who's like, okay, I'm just going to sit tight and, you know, just hold on for this ride. So I think it's a really good question, actually, which I've never thought about. But as you're saying it, I think there's two kinds of fear. The internal fear of my own ability to deliver, I have zero of. Because I know no one is going to be more passionate about this and put as much work. I just outworked everybody my whole life. And that was what my dad taught me. He was just like, you need to get there before everyone. You need to stay after everyone. You work harder than everyone. Like, And that's how you earn your place in this world. And I have made it my, like, I every career, every job I've ever had, I literally outworked everybody. It was like, it was just my work ethic is great. And I were, you know, to me, I believe in it. Like I knew when I met Rachel, like I believed in her. I loved her more than anybody in the world. I was never going to let anyone hurt her or screw her. Like, and if I was so passionate about it and I was, you know, I know that I'm like kind of scrappy. I was like, if there's anyone that is going to protect her and deliver and make this as good as she deserves it to be, it's going to be me. And that kind of drove everything else I did. I've never been afraid of my ability to figure something out. My fear has always been external um, because I'm such a people pleaser. It was like, oh my God, everyone else is going to think I failed or, oh my God, we're launching this campaign and no one's going to show up or what if nobody, you know, every day I'm like, no one's going to listen to our podcast. It's always the external judgment of me that has, oh, I, and I'm working on this a lot, but I think my whole life that it was always like, my what's my family going to think? They're going to think I'm crazy. They're going to think I'm so weird. This version of, I never thought anyone was going to come to my birthday party. So I never had a birthday party is what Mm. happened to everything else in my life. So it was almost easier for me to have these careers where I worked behind the scenes because it wasn't about me. It was, it's about Rachel. It's about this company. It's about the tech company. It's about voting. It's not about me. I don't expect anyone to show up for me. And I think the pivot actually to this podcast where we still don't think it's about me, but at least my picture's there. I'm like, oh, wow, maybe I do have an expectation that people are going to show up for me. And that's really terrifying. It is terrifying because who of us thinks that we're really, you know, people who wouldn't verbalize that they're not actually being honest. I think most of us feel that way. Except like, who knows, Jay-Z or David (laughs) Letterman. But yeah, I I think all my fears always were wrapped up in the perception of me, whatever that means. Yeah. Well, also I was thinking about it because you come from a a tight-knit family and community. Mm Mm-hmm community gets to weigh in because they did pick you up at school and did cover some gaps. So you also had to answer to the community totally. and, and them also asking your mother, like, what is she doing? Yes. Like she, you know, like she was a lawyer and now she's working in fashion. Like, what does this mean? It's, yep. it's an interesting thing to see someone who comes from that and then who still can push out you know, nicely, politely against those walls. Uh, Because usually I feel like we either fall into one or the other. We're free floating and we just kind of make our own way. Or, you know, you you follow the rules a little more because you came from, you know, a good good group, a good family that sort of said, hey, this is what we do. I think that I've always had this like weird internal 
drive. Since I was a kid, I remember being like, I feel different. Like, I feel like I'm supposed to do something amazing. I feel like I'm going to explode. I'm so passionate. I think my whole life, I either assumed everyone felt that way or it just is what it is. And I just need to like keep focus and move on. And I think at some point I realized that is special and I need to lean into it and I need to own that that's how I am. That took forever in my whole life to feel. But I was so worried about how my family was going to respond to something like that because what are you doing? You're a lawyer. Just like go to work. Yeah, it's very grown up. So how do you and uh, Deborah Messing meet? And <laughs> and I, I I know that you have, both of you are very conscious and into social justice. And I don't know if your paths crossed um, that way. And, and then you've created the dissenters. I just would love for you to tell me how you guys arrived. So Deborah and I met many years ago, just socially, and then never saw each other again. And then we have a mutual best friend named Is Ashley. <laughs> yes, who lives in New York. So she lives in New York with Ashley. I live in LA. And we had not seen each other. And Ashley's also the godmother to our kids. So we go to her house every summer in Nantucket. And so one year she's like, Deborah's coming. And I was like, great. And Deborah came and we spent, we were, you know, 10 days in this house together and we became so close. And we, that was really when I was starting to build I'm a voter and, and the concept of it. It wasn't even I'm a voter yet. It was like a hundred other things that year before. And Deborah was. Tell me a little bit. I, you know, just sort of share a little bit about how you got onto I'm a voter. When I, so after Rachel, I went to go work at a tech company and I worked there for about two years and learned so much. It's insane. And I had my second daughter after that two years and kind of took some time, three months, whatever that was. But in that three months that I was forced to pause and reflect on my life and be be still with a child um, was also when all of the kind of craziness around the world was was really happening and, and this political divide. And I think as someone who is so patriotic and loves our country so much and seeing what was happening, I'm like, what is, like, what is, this is not America. This is not, we are so much more united than the, what is being portrayed on the news. Like, this is not who we are. And this is such like a weird pigeonholed perspective on us. So I was like, I'm going to figure this out. I need to give back. I'm going to, you know, I sit on all these boards for tech companies. Like I'm going to help senators with their campaigns and I'm going to, you know, whatever. I don't know what I thought I was going to do. And so I started taking meetings. Like I did every time I pivoted my career, I did the exact same thing before I went from Rachel to tech. I took meetings with a bunch of different senators and congressmen and asked them a lot about what they were doing, where they felt like the gaps were, what the opportunity was, why this was the way that it was. And everything kind of, it just became very, very clear that the most clear systematic change we could experience was voting. That people, if people could just participate um, and show up for their country, then those voices would just be louder, whatever the voices were. And particularly among the millennial generation, which is so massive. Gen Z and the millennials are going to are gonna be bigger than the boomers and they're just not participating in the numbers they should be. And I was like, what do you mean? Like we watch American Idol and we vote. Like what, how can we not? It was so hard for my brain to grasp. And they don't participate. It seems like theater to them. I think that it's the rhetoric is hard yeah. Yes, I think it's they don't know that they're going to make a difference. The rhetoric is too negative. It's too polarized and they don't see change. It's like when 90% of our country wants background changes and we see what happens every single every single day in America, we can't pass background checks. Like why would they have faith in the system? And and I and I really took that to heart and I really and I'm a nerd so I just started diving into the data and really looking at like where the opportunities are and like I do with everything that I need to do. I'm just like, okay, understand the problem. I kind of feel like I understand what the solution could be. And who are the smartest people in the world I know who can figure that out? And it was really about the most critical step I took was was that first email I sent to 25 women I've worked with who are the smartest women in the world that could literally move mountains. And was like, can we all just get together on this Sunday? I feel like I understand a focus. Can we figure this out? And they just said yes, which I was shocked by. And that was the beginning of us working through building this campaign that we all wanted from the beginning to be very nonpartisan, non-polarizing, really positive and empowering, and really trying to show the power of your vote and your voice and and what an, an important part to your identity that is, which is why we called it I Am A Voter. And it's been the most, honestly, the most rewarding and amazing experience in my life. And I, we, like, I remember that summer when I met Deborah, just to bring it back there for a second, we were, you know, I was pitching her and everyone that was on vacation, because I'm a crazy person and I never stop, but I was pitching everyone, like, all these things and these ideas and paths that we could take. And Deborah, who had been working, you know, as a social justice advocate for 
I mean, decades at this point, um, had so much to say and so much feedback. And I just, you know, was like, I need your help. And one of the things that we had talked about was, oh, she asked, like, how do you build a boots on the ground kind of method to voting? And I was like, well, she's like, who would you want to ask? And I'm like, Shannon Watts, she created Moms Demand Action. Like, she knows more about how to mobilize than anyone in America. And she's like, well, then let's get Shannon Watts on the phone. I was like, okay. <laughs> but true Deborah form, she, like, DM'd her and got her, you know, five days later, Shannon Watts called me and was kind of my mentor through all this, which was a game changer. And, you know, cut to the next summer, you know, we made huge progress and Deborah and I are together again. And... I sat with her and that that year was so formative for me. One, because I saw the power of women coming together and how much change we could create. But also, you know, I think I had gone into it, not really cynical, but I just, I used to be really down. Like, why don't people care? Why aren't people doing more? And the minute I did more myself, I realized everyone does care and people do want to do more. Sometimes they don't know what to do. No one asks them. Like when we sent our first email to everyone and was like, hey, we need your help. Literally all like 700 people I emailed <laughs> were like, I'm in. What do I do? Tell me. I'm so happy you asked. I've been waiting to figure out how I can give back. And you realize the power of community, um, how incredible women are getting shit done, but also just this idea that, you know, reach out and involve people and also sometimes show them that they can make a difference and give them the tools to make a difference. And so I looked at Deborah and I was like, I want to dispel kind of the this theory that activism is something that other people do or that you need a degree in it or that you need a history in it or you need a million followers or a ton of money. It's not. Like, all these people we've met through this journey are people that just did something amazing, woke up one day and was like, you know what? I'm going to stand up to this or I'm not going to take this anymore. I'm going to, you know, for me, it was sending that email to 25 women. That that email changed my life. And so she was like, yes, let's do it. And we are such nerds, both of us, and we constantly, like, even before this, that conversation, we were always sending each other like articles and photos of people that really inspired us. I was like, oh my God, have you seen this woman in Nigeria? Like she's doing the cool shit. And we we had at this point like backlogged like a hundred of these articles and photos and things. And I was like, Deb, wouldn't it be amazing if we could actually use this podcast as an excuse <laughs> to meet these people? Like, I don't even care if the podcast airs. I just want to meet, like to us, these are like our biggest celebrities. And so partially was not a joke, but we were like, how amazing would this be if we could just meet these people? And then we really started thinking about it and we were thought about like how important it would be to tell these stories and introduce people to these heroes and and really prove that like our second episode is this woman. I can't even tell you. Her story is just so amazing, but she was, she calls herself the civil rights astronaut and she had an experience while she was in college of sexual assault and was like, there is no law to give me the rights that I deserve right now. So I'm going to write them. And I was like, you're in college? Like, who thinks like that? And then she went and found a professor and put together a team and decided, like, she was going to write these laws. She's passed 30 laws now to protect sexual assault survivors. And it's, I mean, she's incredible. And all of her philosophy is informed by her time that she spent as an intern at NASA. And they're like, what? But the way she talks about it is so, it's like something that everyone could do, right? You just don't really know what those steps are. And so for us, it was really spending like the time to research all of these incredible stories and being able to show a diversity. And like we have an athlete and we have someone who works in fashion and we have someone in women's rights and sexual, you know, all of these things. And being able to show from little steps to really big steps how everyone can make a difference. And there's one guy who like didn't build an organization. He just walked out of his house one day and was like, I'm going to start cutting people's hair that are homeless. Like I'm a hairstylist. I love him. Mark, right? I was like, that's an amazing, because his, not only is he amazing, but this idea that like, you don't need an organization. You don't need a 501c3. You don't need to do a foundation. Like take a pair of scissors and walk out your door and like show empathy and compassion to another human being. Um, and that creates, like compounds, you know, change forever. Those people, you change that person's life and just that interaction and all the people around who saw it are different. It's a really diverse group of people who have done really incredible things. And like, we just, I mean, our tagline is there are heroes everywhere, discover them, become one. And we really believe like that's ultimately what it is. If you hear the stories and you understand that you're, as corny as it sounds like, you're just like these people and you can do it too, that maybe we would see more of that engagement. And it's interesting because when we see stories like that, I think they do impact us in a very profound way versus when we, are sold all of the negative stories. Even to your point about 
you know, I do believe we are more connected and on the same page than what the media would love for us to believe. 100%. I mean, I go to the market and I interact with human beings and I feel a kinship. Totally. You know, 99.9% of the time. And usually the other, you know, small time you realize someone's having, they're having a rough go, you know, and, you know, they're sort of in that place. But yes. It's interesting how, you know, they sell us all the separation, but yet when we experience these stories, that it really does touch us and resonate. But then I do feel, to your point, that people go, well, what, what can I do? And, and I don't think it's just not what can I do, because it's a little bit about the way you've done it or the way Mark cuts hair. He's an instrument and he's still being organic or an organic extension of who he really is. And so I I think part of that is, and I'm sure you guys get this over and over on your show, is it isn't about not being yourself and doing it, but it's trying to tie into this thing inside you that's calling you and doing it that way. And I certainly think that that's one of the, those things. Have you found, or maybe you could just share some of the things that you see in common with all of these disruptors you know, like sometimes I, I think that they're not really concerned about what the results are going to be. No. And the, the so to your point, the biggest arc you keep seeing over and over is very, I actually can't name one of them that started because they had a vision of a massive organization at the end, right? No one has like this crazy end goal. And I think people are, that's why they're driven by fears. What if I don't create an organization? But that's not where these things start. These things start. And it's kind of why I brought up that email anecdote is it always starts with the first step. It's like, you know there's something that bothers you. Know, you know there's something that you think about. And it's funny, one of the things that I hear more often than not from people is like, well, I don't really have any social media followers. And I'm like, that that is not relevant. <laughs> That's but like you, a 10-year phenomenon. Yes. Like. But also like everyone doesn't need to be the founder of a movement, right? I mean, and that's one of the things actually Shannon Watts is amazing at, she is just this idea of organizing is like, you don't always have to be the leader. Like you can also just give back. You can, you can join a local chapter and donate two hours a week. And, and not only does that two hours a week make you feel different and make you feel like you've taken one step closer to, to dealing with this thing that you've been avoiding for so long, but you realize like everyone is looking, everyone, regardless of what you say is like, everyone's looking for their purpose and everyone's looking for their people. And what you realize, and Glennon Doyle talks about this in our first episode, is when you when you engage in these things, you figure out your purpose. And the purpose points you directly to your people. That Those 25 women that I sent those emails to are my sisters. We are like bound together forever. The once a week when we sit at the DBA offices eating cheese boards and like having our weekly meeting, that is probably the most impactful two hours of my week. And that really is what changes you and makes you feel like you have a purpose and you belong somewhere and you're around the people that share your interests and and you're they're motivated. I learned so much from these women. It's crazy. And we all help each other. One of us has a kid. We're all there. Like we are, one of us is launching a new business. Like all of us chip in and help each other. And it's, I mean, that happens and not all of us are founders, right? I mean, we technically are in this movement, but I think, you know, when you think about organizations like Moms Demand Action that has hundreds and hundreds of thousands of women across America donating their time, they're all this beautiful community of like warriors that work together and and really make crazy impactful change that saves lives every single day. I think it's really the, this letting go of this idea that you have to create some massive thing um, and just leaning into whatever it is that keeps you up at night or that thing that you've been avoiding or that thing that you're constantly thinking about and just taking that one step, whether it's like emailing someone on LinkedIn who you think is doing something cool or DMing them or knowing someone who works somewhere and asking if you can join a meeting or anything. I think there's there's so many ways, but that, that first step is terrifying. It's terrifying. I get it. But you just have to do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, then, and then you're doing it. I remember my husband said that to me when I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life, he was like, send the first email. Because right now you're thinking about doing something. But the minute you send that first email, you're doing it. And that that shift is so critical. And, and that really stayed with me through this too. Well, we're always so result-oriented. And I think that gets in the way of, of just so much because we are taught, well, what's that going to mean in the long run? 
versus to your point, you know, just taking that first step. So how are you doing with balancing all that energy and passion and intensity as an individual person (laughs) and being a mom and a wife to somebody? So I have two daughters. They're five and two. My husband is amazing. He's my biggest cheerleader in the world. He thinks like everything I'm doing is so awesome and he's so in it. Is he a similar culture background or did no, you? No, not at all. Did you go rogue? What no, happened? I totally went rogue. I mean, he's Jewish, but he's American, but like didn't grow up in, in a family very similar to mine at all. But he is so supportive um, of everything. Even when I was like, hi, I'm quitting my job. Thanks. <laughs> my daughters, I mean, Millie, the, the Miller, the younger one is kind of two and she's just running around. Anderson, who's five, is so engaged. You know, what's fascinating is, you know, you think about activism and social justice and engagement or whatever you want to call the term. It's It all kind of is rooted in, in empathy and compassion, which is fundamentally rooted in kindness. And so the thing that I t- try to teach my daughter above anything is just kindness. That will grow and manifest itself in a million other ways, but it's thinking about other people's feelings. Um, and we talk about an act of kindness and she'll say, well, I made my bed. I'm like, no, that you did that for yourself. What did you do for someone else? And you start training them to think about other people's feelings and what other people need and how you can, what you can do to help other people. And she's so now aware of her surroundings and, and being compassionate, which to me is, is so important and giving her role models. Like she's, I have no idea why, but obsessed with Kamala Harris. I don't know when in my journey she she met her and Andy was like, I'm going to be president. I'm going to be just like Kamala Harris. And Andy's obsessed with her, um, which, by the way, you couldn't have a better role model. So I'm like, Godspeed, go. This is great. But yeah, I think it's, you know, we've I've tried really hard to present her with role models and to talk to her about what I'm doing. She loves voting. She is like an I'm a future voter shirt that she wears all the time and her pin and she talks about it. And we talk about voting all the time because I try to explain to her like how your voice determines your life and your outcomes. So like, okay, guys, we're going to have ice cream. Like who want, you know, who's going to vote for vanilla versus chocolate? And if you don't vote, then daddy and I are going to choose chocolate and you're not going to get your vanilla. And she's like, what? (laughs) it's weird, but I try to think about how to keep her engaged in these conversations so she understands, but she loves it. You are very, you know, even mentioning like that I could throw you into a situation and you'll be like, okay, I'll navigate it. And it's funny, you said something about common sense and we joke like common sense, which is like the least common. Yes, straight. Just like, okay, common sense is really not common, but is there anything that you have discovered about yourself in motherhood or in your own family living that like threw you for a little bit of like, oh, I'm so surprised. I think that before Andy was born, my oldest one, I had this really profound sense of self-importance that I didn't know I possessed. And I felt like if I didn't work really hard or harder than everyone and work 20 hours a day, like nothing was going to get done and everything was going to fall apart. And the, the weight of the world was on my shoulders, which is just, I don't know why. I mean, I, I don't know why I taught myself that, but that was such a big part of who I was. And I think when I had my daughter and I stopped and I took time to be with her and I was like, oh my God, everything is fine. Everyone's still breathing and eating and the world moved on and the companies are all fine. And But it was also, I think that you just get so engulfed by your ambition and your career and you just think that like everything you're doing is so important and and for me, it was produ- the fashion show that we were producing was so important. And oh my God, FedEx isn't here. What are we going to do? The whole world's going to fall apart. I mean, and then I think when you have when you have a child, you realize like there are so many things that are so much more important. But also like you do need other people. Like I could never survive without my amazing nanny and my family and my husband and the women at work and the men at work who carried so much of the weight. And and that you know it's a team sport. Everything as corny as that sounds, but it really is. And it allowed me to have the balance that I needed to survive and be a really good mom to my daughters. I really just, I know that sounds crazy, but it was, it was really enlightening for me to experience. Um, and, and I, that has changed how I function because I'm much more focused in the work that I do. I don't waste time doing a lot of things I don't need to do. And I also know that if I don't do it and I ask someone else to do it, they're probably going to do better than me. So it's all good. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and you know, I get asked, a lot about balance because I think all people are balancing quite a, a lot of things. And it, I always found it fascinating that no one ever asks men like about having it all, uh, if you will. But for somehow we 
have this notion of having it all. Is there anything that you think is kind of some of your secret sauce as to, you know, why you're able to manage and and keep all of these these plates spinning, whether it be at a marriage, being a mom, taking on new businesses and new uh, ventures and new causes. I mean, obviously, I, I know you're a hardworking person who can solve things or figure out things. Do you think it's something that you do that is, uh, you know, supports you in that juggle? I kind of think about like when I look at my schedule or my life, I have these like anchor moments. Like I know I'm going to have breakfast with my kids. I know I'm, I need like to put them down. I know that I want to do this with my husband on Thursday nights. Cause that's like our show. And like, I kind of know the things that are non-negotiable and I know it's my friends, like whatever launch and I'm going to be there and I don't really care. And so I build my life around the moments that are really, really important to me. And so if I have to work an extra three hours, at night, I will to make up for that time. But the balance for me is not missing the things that I can't miss that are really important to me as like a human being, but also forgiving myself when I do and not being so hard on myself because like balance is fluid. It's like some weeks you suck as a mom and some weeks you don't suck as a mom. I think that that it's like being okay, failing and not failing. And I think, you know, I think with women, it's I don't mean this to sound negative, but I always was speaking on these like panels about like working moms. And I'm like, guys, this is not a new phenomenon. Like women have been working and having children for like thousands of years. I don't know why we're we're like babying each other. Like women are fucking fierce and they're bad and they can do a million things. And we don't need these like kid gloves around us. All these women dancing around having nannies. I'm like, it's fine to have a nanny. It's all good. We all do it. Like, let's own up to our shit so we can be there for each other and actually like be honest about things that are really hard and how we get through it and advice. And I don't know, this this persona that people create where like you're so present and you cook dinner and like you wrap your fork and knife in the twine with a rosemary. Like, I don't, we eat on paper plates half the week. There's food all over the ground. Like, it's fine. The kids are happy. Like, look at my kids. They're super happy. That is my barometer of success with my kids. And I think this, like, Instagram photo mom shaming thing is just, it's honestly, it's crazy to me. Do you do you get moments of, for, like, a self-care practice in there? Do you get time to take care of your body in some way? Yeah, when I yeah. can. Get it in? Yeah. You know, we all do our best. Again, it's this, like, not putting the expectation that if I don't, that I like suck or I don't love my, you know, it's really just, I think that was the hardest thing I learned was, was being like nicer to myself and not being so hard on myself and accepting that like there are good days, bad days, good weeks, bad weeks. Like as long as I feel like I have integrity and I can go to bed with the person that I am, then I'm okay with it. Can you share how RBG influenced you guys? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, she's, RBG. So obviously, like, as a lawyer, as, like, some uh, two crazy neurotic Jewy ladies, like, she's obviously, like, the coolest woman in the world. But I think this I dissent slogan is so important because it, this idea of saying, like, no, this isn't okay. There's a better way. And um, what we wanted to do was honor the people that really did that, but that just kind of saw something that was wrong or something that could be better or someone that needed to be stood up for and created the space for it or forged the path for it or advocated for it. And I just like felt very crazy to, I mean, for us, it was, it all started with her anyways, our personal journeys. So it just, yeah, I couldn't imagine having her not like involved somehow. (laughs) And you, so you guys are doing 20 shows a season. Is this right? A year, a year thereabouts. Yeah. The idea is, is really like we spent about a year actually researching all these people and we kind of narrowed it down to the the 20 people that that really blew us away and that represented a pretty diverse narrative and just wanted to tell their stories and what they learned and try to share with people that there's no like path to this there's a million different paths and you just have to figure yours out but you just try and and this idea that anything is better than nothing i feel like you guys should capture i wish there was a way to simultaneously do like shows on them podcasts and a visual show because you're already doing so much work and weeding it out. And obviously Deborah's a storyteller and you've put things together. And part, part of me is like, cause you're, you know, you're drilling down and saying, no, we're want to talk, tell their story, but maybe that's your next. That would be amazing. 
Yeah, it would be. Thank you again, by the way, for doing this. I'm like so grateful. Are you kidding? I am such a fan of yours. I I am not, you know, I have a different delivery system as far as like, oh, I want to tell good stories. But I think the more examples of people who who are willing to say, I'm just going to do what feels good and right for me that are out there and inspire people. And it goes back to if it's just one person, you know, who cuts hair. It's like, okay, one person. Totally. Are we changing the whole world? No, maybe we can talk, like help one person. Yeah. So, all right. One last question. You know, when you're looking at the landscape, because I know you are, what do you think is next next? Like when you go, hey, I, I've got some other ways I want to express myself. I know um, that I've always wanted to run for office. So I think that would be like my, that's my one like life goal bucket list. I imagine we'll be much when my kids are older and I can leave them and live in DC if I ever get elected. I know this sounds weird. It's for the first time in my life. I don't know. And it's not that I don't care, but I'm not freaked out by it because my whole life has been this series of like planning and hierarchy and climbing ladders and whatever. And I think I'm I'm super proud of what I'm doing and what I'm building and and the stories I'm telling and the people are, that are my friends. I mean, the people that I have forced to be my friends are just like, I can't even handle it. And I'm happy. I, I feel like I'm going to jinx it when I say that, but I'm, I'm happy with the person that I am. I'm happy with the people that I love. And I'm like proud of the stories that we're telling and like whatever happens is going to happen. Yeah. Your brother must be pissed. He must be like, how did she finagle that? <laughs> he surgery three days a week. <laughs> totally. He has to like interview 75 patients every week. He must so be like, smart. That how'd, she, crazy. how'd she finagle that? Oh, he's so smart. It's obnoxious. <laughs> well, listen, um, you guys come out. When is it? Is it May? May 21st. Right. Are they gonna, oh, so it's just going to be every week, Thursday for 20 weeks. Yep. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So you guys are going to hit it hard and then see what happens. Yeah, we've met. You'll meet our 20 heroes. We're like really excited. They're amazing. And Thursday's episode is Glennon Doyle, who's like, our favorite person ever. So it's a really fun, fun story. Well, I'm not going to wish you good luck. I'm just going to say congratulations. Thank you. I'll take the luck though, but thank you. (laughs) We need it. Thanks so much for listening. And if you'd like, rate, subscribe, and leave us a review. All of my music was graciously done by Frank Zumo and Tom Thacker. If you want to see some of the behind the scenes action, just follow me at Gabby Reese. And remember, don't miss new episodes every Monday. 